This episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by you, our dedicated listeners and supporters. Thanks to your continued listening, sharing, and donations, we've been able to continue the show free from third-party advertisers and sponsors. So, thank you. And if you'd like to learn about other ways you can support the show, visit patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. Hi, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Raber, CEO and founder of The Workshop. I have a bachelor's in biochemistry and a PhD in organic chemistry from the University of Southern California. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is produced by Natural Learning Enterprises, a mission-driven company dedicated to enhancing critical thinking skills and public scientific literacy about life and the natural world. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. Come on, Molly! It'll be an adventure! Phoebe called out as she followed Brother Toadstool. Brother Toadstool led Phoebe and Molly into a tunnel that went deep down into the ground. As they climbed into the tunnel, they found themselves getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Our new children's book, A Toadstool's Treasures, takes young readers on an adventure into the fun and fascinating world of fungi. Learn more and find mycology-related learning resources, games, and lesson plans for teachers and homeschooling families at toadstoolstreasures.com. Biodiversity loss due to habitat loss and fragmentation is rapidly increasing around the world with devastating consequences. Learn how you can help contribute to native habitat corridors in your community and reconnect with your wild neighbors at gardenwild.org. Oregon recently became the first state in the United States to legalize the medical use of psilocybin. As cities all over the country begin to decriminalize the use of entheogenic plants and fungi, it's time to have a serious discussion about psychedelics. The Serious About Psychedelics limited series podcast is coming soon. Learn more at SeriousAboutPsychedelics.com. You can learn more about Natural Learning Enterprises at naturaledu.com. And now, back to the show. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Canvas podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today I am really excited to finally be crossing paths with somebody who um, has also been in the cannabis testing world and extraction world, product uh, manufacturing standardization world. Um, I'm here with Dr. Jeff Raber. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for being willing to come on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Jason. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. And for those that are listening that um, aren't familiar with your background, there's quite a lot we can go into because the workshop's been around since uh, 2010. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind sharing a little bit about um, how you got into the world of cannabis testing and and studying the uh, biochemistry of the cannabis plant and all of those awesome nuances? Sure, sure. Happy to do so. 
Uh, it was the end of 2008. My brother was working at a construction company and realized they were actually building a storefront dispensary in Orange County, California. Um, he comes home and says, I, I think this is a place where they're going to sell you know, marijuana. I said, that cannot be legal. I have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> are you sure? He said, yeah, they called it medicine. And they said that there are medical laws for that. So that really piqued my interest. I had been working in drug discovery, drug development, and fine chemical manufacturing, um, working with new continuous flow technology tools to produce uh, fine chemical intermediates at scale in efficient manners so we could manufacture in the U.S. Um, and uh, you know, he says it's medicine, and I'm like, well, that's very interesting. I go and look through the library, go all over the internet, and find out that there is immense medical potential for cannabinoids to impact this endocannabinoid system. In my graduate career, I worked on a class of compounds called lipoxins. Oh, and cool. when you look at arachidonic acid, it forms lipoxins, leukotrienes, and endocannabinoids. So I didn't know about the third leg of the stool there, but you know, learned about it uh, through this uh, self-research, if you will, and thought, what a tremendous amount of utility that could come from this plant if we are to look at it the right way, harness all of its potential, and really we could develop a ton of non-psychoactive utility as well. Because what had been happening as it was illegal and suppressed was everything was kind of geared towards fundamental, you know, one type of detection, which would be right. physiologically psychoactive. Um, but what if we drove it towards other molecules or other uses because we could look at it from an analytical uh, or molecular perspective, if you will? So beginning of 2009, President Obama's on CNN says, I'm going after drug trafficking organizations, not medical patients. I found that as the entrepreneurial green light. I had my own medical needs and interests. I had walked around the dispensaries long enough to see a tremendous amount of people could be helped, but nobody would understand which product was right for them or what they were really getting, couldn't understand dosing. And also there's a product supply chain kind of purity problem. What else is going along with the products, right? Pesticides, mold, other types of contaminants. So at that point, it was pretty clear, leverage your chemistry and scientific background and enter the, you know, the, the playing field, if you will, um, from a testing lab perspective, because it should have low regulatory risks, a high barrier to entry, and could offer a tremendous amount of social benefit by understanding what we have in our hands and how to best utilize it. So that was what we did, and we opened our doors in April um, of 2010 and started testing can medical cannabis in California, mostly in the Southern California area. And number of years worked in solely in testing and were very frustrated with that as many mm -hmm. people didn't want to voluntarily test. You know, it's a very difficult conversation to say, please, you know, spend $50 to just know how much you have in your brownie when you're selling, you know, over a thousand brownies, if you will. Um, that the economics were pretty astounding at that point that people still wouldn't want to spend $50 to help put a proper label on things. Um, we eventually get through to them saying you haven't fully decarboxylated. If you wanted to utilize all your oil, the best way, mm. here's how you could maximize your you know, effectiveness and stretch it out into 2000 brownies instead of the thousand that you made. Oh, well, okay, I could double my money. Here's your $50, sir. <laughs> like, you know, that economic argument kind of started to grab a little bit of attention. Um, and in 2011, we saw the very big importance for testing terpenes. 
right? Mm-hmm. By the end of 10, we said, why well, all of these chromatograms for cannabinoids look highly similar. They're almost identical, but they smell different, taste different, and are driving different effects. What's the differences here? Must be something relating to these terpene components. And in 2011, we began testing for terpenes and gave it away for six months just so everybody could see the importance and utility of it putting it on labels, sharing the information, and starting the conversation of, hey, it's not only this you know, amount of THC or even CBD that might be good for me, but these other molecules really drive important decisions on what might be the best medicine for me. Um, the testing was a challenge. It still is a challenge today, mm-hmm. even a, a more difficult one perhaps. Um, but we started to leverage more of our background in manufacturing sciences, and offering contract manufacturing services. So understanding extraction methodologies, how to do them with or without solvents, how to make high purity cannabinoids so that you could use them as ingredients, and coupling that with our terpene-based information to create cannabis compositions that are standardized and consistent. And that kind of fast forwards to today, we offer licensing of intellectual property, know-how, and all sorts of tools that we have in our suite and offer it to people across the country in many different states to help them lay out their manufacturing facility, choose the right extraction methodologies for them, develop the procedures, uh, train the staffing, and license um, all of those pieces to them on an ongoing basis where we act as like the scientific support staff. So Mm -hmm. we've got the core of scientists that know all the ins and outs of manufacturing, efficiently testing through all the regulatory hoops, and then how to create a great product that's consistent with the act accurate label at the end. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really awesome and the the parallels between your work and sort of my professional path are so similar. It's kind of funny cuz to back up a little bit going to the the cannabis testing stuff. Um when I got into cannabis testing in Oregon, it was right when uh testing became required under the medical program there. Okay. Um but it wasn't uh it wasn't really heavily regulated. Uh, there weren't a lot of requirements on what can be tested or what. Yeah. So, so this, uh, this battle. Wasn't it, of, cana- wasn't it cannabinoids? And if you had mold, was that where it started? Yeah, it was uh, cannabinoids, mold, and then there was a pesticide requirement. But it was they just identified four broad classes of pesticides and no specific uh, pesticides listed under those classes. So you had <laughs> you had some labs that were testing like one pesticide under each class and then like our lab we were we were just kind of thinking about it a little differently so we just found a lab that specialized in pesticide testing and collaborated with them and so we had panels of like 300 pesticides <laughs> and nobody wanted that panel no at all coming to your test <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and and there's these weird dynamics that i think a lot of people in the industry it, it's hard to appreciate unless you're a scientist trying to do some of this work when you come in, especially if you're used to highly regulated environments and quality controls and, uh, you know, ISO and all these different things, yep. uh, you come in and you're like, all right, I'm ready to do high quality analytical work and really, you know, drive, you know, science uh, education and research in this field. And then you start to find out most people really just want to get high THC numbers and they don't really want to know about their pesticides and the products. And it became this this battle for years of trying to get people to value what you're trying to do. And 
it sounds like you you ran into that yourself. Oh yeah, yeah. They didn't value accuracy or being able to find those problematic contaminants. <laughs> they said, yeah. "Here's the sample. Give me a thirty percent THC test result." <laughs> like I don't think that's how this is supposed to work. I'm supposed to tell you what you have, not you dictate what the you know what the results are. Um, and unfortunately, you know, there's still a lot of that going along, and still a lot of that that where they lab shop to try and get the you know highest uh, THC number. And I think mm-hmm. the public is wising up to understanding it's not only about that. It's about more than just one cannabinoid. It's about, you know, all the composition that's there. And if I have a lot of one, that means I have next to none of the others. Yep. So, you know, I think we'll start to see that correct itself. It's taken a lot longer than I would have thought. Mm-hmm. And regulations have made it really difficult to be a good lab. Um, and you get punished for being accurate, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So until they get out, you know, all the other bad actors, it will, you know, be a little bit of a struggle for those who are really good operators, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And looking back to when you first started doing cannabis testing, you know, I mean, the workshop was one of the earliest labs that I remember seeing come on the market because um, this was stuff I was following before I actually got into the space to try to understand what people were doing and and who's kind of leading that charge. Um, did you start doing contaminant testing right away or did you primarily focus on um, like potency and, and chemical characterization? Yep. Our first decision was how do we quantify cannabinoids? And we yeah. came out with an HPLC when everybody else had only the gas chromatographs. Yep. So it was a large education of what's this big giant word decarboxylation and what does that mean? <laughs> um, you know, the analysis is twice as difficult because you have all the cannabinoid acids and the neutral mm-hmm. cannabinoids. Um, the equipment was more expensive. So you had to get more standards, more expensive equipment, but you had a much broader breadth of what you could test for and test for accurately, right? What exactly am I holding in my hand? Not what did my injector heat up and convert to other molecules and then tell me is there. So if I have anything I'm going to orally consume, I can't change it via temperature. It's not going to work. Um, so we made the tough decision. Let's go with the HPLC first. And we did cannabinoid profiling only. After that, we got some people to um, help us adopt a rapid uh, testing method for microbiological contaminants. So we had enough dispensaries that were going to be supportive of that effort that we could secure the equipment and do the rapid culturing techniques. And then after that, we moved to um, getting the GCFID and MS which allowed us to do pesticides and the terpene profiling. Mm-hmm. So that was in uh, the end of 2010, we did the microbio piece. And in early 2011, we started the pesticides for just some basic pesticides with GCMS and the terpene piece with GCFID. So we've kind of evolved to getting all the pieces, but out of the gate, we started with cannabinoids. Well, and that's that's common for pretty much most of the labs I've talked to, and even in my own experience, you've got to, and that's just how new businesses go too, try to work your way up and, and yeah. build things out. If you dive into the deep end too fast, you can ruin a business. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What did you notice early on when you started looking at pesticides? And how have some of the contaminants that you've seen in cannabis products changed over time? Because you've been looking and thinking about some of these things now for a decade. 
Yeah, I think it was the first thing that we saw was it was really alarming. So yeah. we saw the microbiome piece, and you're like, okay, so you know, for the most part, it's not too bad. I think everybody yeah. could kind of select, but you did see some of the samples where you're like, this is an entire microorganism party, one in every class, <laughs> off the charts. You're like, oh my god, like I don't want to touch that stuff. In pesticides, I think it was alarming that we were seeing tremendous amounts of plant growth regulators, you know, lots of things that would be maybe preemptively applied just so that there weren't things showing up rather than responding to a pest problem. They just blasted the room and said, I'll just overdo it to make sure I never see that show up because no one's going to check. And, you know, you show up with the ability to start to check and they're like, "Uh oh, wait, someone said that I put that on here. Well, that's not cool. Don't send it to those guys. Um, it was alarming because we were seeing 70 plus percent of the products had something in them. And we were not obviously testing a large percentage of the products, but we were mostly given things that people thought were good. Right, mm -hmm. things that would have high potency numbers, things that were coming from someone trusted. If it's a voluntary test, I'm going to spend my money on the ones that I think I'm going to get a good label for, and I'm going to go verify it. There were a few people that said, I don't know this guy, could you please check him out so that I can see if there's anything on here? Um, so there was some of that too, but the amount of prevalence that we saw was quite alarming. And it led to our first publication when we said, Hey, don't you want to do these types of tests? You know, the response was, well, why should I bother testing for pesticides? Is it really a problem if I combust the product and, and inhale it? Right. Are those things still there? And so that's a really fair, accurate question. Why don't we go ahead and study that? So we put some pesticides purposely on plant material. We sent those through a mechanical lung system, trapped them and captured them and saw that up to, you know, 60 to 70% of what was on the flower entered the airways. So you were transferring a large amount of what's there into the, the airway, which could go directly into the bloodstream. And it's a very different perspective than eating some on some fruit. We understand the toxicology of oral consumption of a lot of those, but not via inhalation. And I think that was you know a piece that we thought had to be done so we could help regulators understand this is a problem. And here's some basis of information for why you might want to set action limits on what may or may not be allowed in the absence of any other information pertaining to inhalation of these things. And it was, I mean, I think the lab testing job was kind of like the scary one in that you're like, wow, there's a lot of bad things out here. I'm kind of glad I'm in this spot because I can filter through it and at least know what's good for, you know, me and my friends or those that we talk to in some respects. Right. But there are a lot of people being exposed to things that they really shouldn't be. And there's this presumption of, you know, product quality and cleanliness when it's sitting on a shelf. Like, I think mm -hmm. there's just, I assume as a consumer, there's got to be, you know, somebody checking that this label is accurate and this product is okay for me. But in, in cannabis, like especially in the early days, it was not so much the case. We're better off now that we have regulations and some standards and they are requiring independent testing before it hits the product shelves. Um, but if you're in a state where there's no mandatory testing, it's still going to be a very difficult game to get clean products, I would say. Yeah, I agree. And and there's an interesting dynamic that has emerged even in the uh, regulated states that have testing that now there's a consumer perception, just like you said, of if you see it on a shelf, you assume that it's safe. Now there's a presumption that if it's quote unquote tested, it's safe um, <laughs> with with a missing nuance of like, well, what was it tested for? for. Yeah. And, and what are the limitations to that too? Because there are things that we may not think about um, that 
you know, could also be problematic that get added to regulations later, yep. you know. Um, it's an evolving game, right? And, yeah. and we saw the evolution of people put a lot of plant growth regulators and bad pesticides on the products. Regulations come out, they adapted and adopted new methodologies. And you, you may see like the first harvest round, if you will, in a regulated system, not quite make it. And there's a lot of failures, but they quickly change that and then make it you know, through the next round. And I think we've seen immense changes in a very good fashion to product quality and cleanliness, where a lot of these things that were utilized on the plants during the agricultural efforts in the previous days are no longer applied. And we don't yeah. see you know, alarming amounts of plant growth regulators or a lot of pesticides. So I think we have seen that correct itself to a great fashion. Um, and some still learn the hard way or didn't know that they had a problem or it came from somewhere else. And you got to track it down that it was bad soil or the water table right. in some respects or overspray from their neighbor, unfortunately. Um, so those learnings have gone on. And I think we've seen a great improvement in product quality. Now and cleanliness. Now, to the point that you're making, is this good for me? Well, you know, how much are you taking? Which one are you taking? Which way are you <laughs> yeah. taking it? And what all is in there? Um, and I think, you know, last year with the the vape crisis and the Valley scare, it really alerted everyone to say, hey, these things might ha contain things that shouldn't be inhaled via these devices in this fashion. Now, I can you know, apply as much vitamin E acetate to my skin as I probably would like, and it's not going to be a toxicology concern to a grave extent. It's pretty fine. It's going to become vitamin E, and it will become right. acetic acid. So vinegar and vitamin E, I don't mm -hmm. think anybody has major problems with this. Break it down inside of a vape device where it can form a molecule called ketene, which is highly reactive and can really react adversely with the lungs. Okay, that's a very different problem. So yep. just because it was safe for you know topical use doesn't mean it's good and, and okay for inhalation use. And that's kind of the point where we're at now. We're like, you know, evolving our understanding. We still have lack of toxicological understandings in these molecules and the fate of them via these devices based on how they're used in these types of formulations. It's an exceptionally complex picture. Right. And you can just see yeah, like, absolutely. you know, regulators heads going like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to deal with this one next. I thought we just figured out that the packaging had to be childproof. You know, it's you know, I, I didn't take chemistry in class and some of the in school and some of these um, state regulators are, you know, tax specialists or, yeah. you know, specialists in writing rules because they follow a process, but not really because they understand science or detailed biochemistry, toxicology and chemistry. I mean. It's a very technical piece, and now I think the communities around, everyone's trying to offer their perspective, but in a regulator position, it's very difficult to appreciate who's being honest for honesty's sake, who's telling me accurate info, why might they you know, be you know, saying one thing over another? Is it for their business, or is it really because that's what they truly have data to support? Like, this is yeah. not a harmful product. This has been used so much. And we do have kind of like ongoing running use, right? We have seen a lot right. of people consume cannabis. We know when they've combusted these molecules inside of the plant, it hasn't generated alarming problems or we'd have seen them by now. So, you know, we can say we're not starting at zero, but maybe we're starting only at like number one or two and we have to get to, you know, 10 to 100. We're not quite sure how far we have to go, but we do have some info to kind of shape the best position today. But I think the honest conversation is we don't know all those answers and they might be much more unsatisfactory or difficult for us to understand. 
Um, but we're doing the best that we can, you know, given all absolutely. that we can today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're really, I mean, this whole industry has been held back for so long. There's a lot of catch up that we're doing to even understand these different products that are being made and all of these little nuances, these little differences and everything. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you going to another point that you made that um, as the regulations around cannabis testing evolve in different states, um, you still have these bad actors that are producing inflated numbers or passing stuff. This was a really big deal in Washington not too long ago when they finally yeah. did an audit <laughs> of the yeah. state system and realized that a lot of labs were not actually doing microbiological testing and stuff. Um, what are some of those dynamics that are at play that are allowing some of these bad actors uh, to continue operating? Well, they also had 40% uh, THC numbers in the flowers in Washington. <laughs> so yep. I think yep. the analysis said, hey, this lab that's giving the highest THC value seems to have the majority of the market. Um, is there a and possible no correlation here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, zero product <laughs> failures. Like, wait a minute. Um, it's very difficult to do accurate, uh, what we would call round robin or ring testing with actual live samples on the laboratories. So how has the regulator gone about trying to say this laboratory is technically competent and capable and able to do the task that we're asking them to do and are doing it right time and time and time again? Um, you know, there's two parts, precision and accuracy. So did I couple my arrows together and did I put them in the center of the target? So I can have them all coupled together, but they're like off the entire target. And it looks like I'm doing fairly well because they're all coupled together. All my results come out the same, but I have a systematic error that made me miss the target. I wouldn't know that unless I compared it against other labs that said, well, wait a minute, my arrows are going to the center of the target. Our numbers are wildly different. So it started with, you know, Emerald Scientific's ring testing, mm -hmm. but the where that started because of regulation and, and the federal illegalities wasn't here's your plant sample to go check. It's here's a standard in a vial, crack this open, inject it, and let's see what you get, which is probably more of a calibration test than mm -hmm. it is of an actual sample prep test and how you're going to go reporting the real samples that you're testing. And amazingly, in the beginning, people couldn't even have their machines calibrated right. So whether you were doing everything else right, if you didn't have your machine calibrated right, you still were getting wrong numbers and maybe even systematically wrong. So I think finding ways of building much more solid ring testing scenarios with live samples where you know you've put these pesticides on it and they can find it in the matrix where you know you know these groups have gotten the accurate potency numbers within reasonable standard deviations and, and lab accuracy limits and then blindly sending them samples when they don't know the ring test is coming <laughs> would yeah. probably be you know a much better way of doing it and this is how other industries and mature industries operate you know across the board where you're and and good labs want that to be done like send the blind sample in i treat them all the same and if i'm off because something drifted and i didn't know it or some analyst was you know not following the procedures you know, there's unfortunately still humans involved. So there's going to be potential for error. How can I know that it happened, make sure it didn't happen, set up systems to check that it's not happening, or just getting verification that it's not happening to me. And I think Washington is still struggling with how do I accurately regulate these labs? How do I, you know, if I go in and look that they have all this paperwork, 
okay, I see they have all the paperwork, but is their method valid? Like, is it actually robust and accurate? Is it giving me the right results? I mean, they're repeatedly doing the same thing. And I think the other misconception is ISO 17025, you know, accreditation means that you're accurate. No, it means that you push all the paperwork and you repeatedly do something. Does that mean it's the right thing? (laughs) Not necessarily. It just means that you're repeatedly doing perhaps even the wrong analysis. So that's one part to say you've got good quality management, but we don't have the piece that says this is a robust method. This is one that 10 labs have said always gives them the same results no matter what happens or comes through and do something like that. You can do that method, you know, a published AOAC or USP method, or you can have your own method that's faster and better as long as it gets the same results as that method. So you can cross validate against that. And that piece, unfortunately, is still missing. It's taking... You know, some time, I think the NIST group and AOAC are working on robust methodologies for testing of Mm -hmm. cannabinoids. Um, USP has kind of thrown their hat in the game saying we've got some ideas about how to do this. So it's it's coming, but you know it just takes time to kind of demonstrate it and work through all of that. And we're not not quite there yet. And the scary part is we're just still working on flour. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, right? we're trying to get an accurate potency number or other number on flour, you know, not all the concentrates, not all the other forms, not all the derivative products and not everything that you see in a dispensary shelf. We're still working on, you know, 25 to 30% of what you see in some of the shelves. That's it. Yep. The other ones all have those same problems, if not bigger problems, because finding pesticides in those matrices is much more difficult than some others. Um, and I think that's what really leads to, you know, it's going to be a while till we get to where we really want to go. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And one thing that I noticed when I split out of the commercial cannabis testing world and got into primarily quality management consulting and going to some of these labs and trying to help them implement quality systems and validate methods. Um, I was shocked at the lack of formal validation of methods uh, <laughs> in most places that I went. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of them didn't really even understand uh, what a full method validation looks like. And um, it like sort of nauseated me because it, it really makes you realize that um, a lot of the data floating around, I mean, you just, it's like interesting, but you don't know what you can really do with it. You can't compare data between labs, you know, all these issues. And then like you pointed out, uh, let's just say with like edibles where you have hundreds of different matrices all grouped under one product category, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> There are some labs trying to do good work um, publishing data as they're trying to validate some of these matrices. There was a paper that came out recently about chocolate that was interesting. Yep. Um, but for the most part, um, when it comes to edibles, <laughs> accuracy is all over the place and there's really not a good way to even verify it. And so it comes down to like a lot of working with the producer and trying to understand like, well, what are your controls and what did you do? What were the inputs? And let me look at my data and what I can control and what I can measure and, you know, does it seem to be painting a consistent picture, you know, or, you know, what's going on. And I think a lot of consumers um, are still kind of in the dark in that, on that side of testing. Um, I, yeah. I don't know if there's a full appreciation for the complexity. So I think in the beginning yeah. we were often given what I said, the top down problem. Here's my brownie. What do I have in it? 
They're like, right. well, I'm yeah. finding, you know, 38 milligrams. What'd you put in there? And they're like, yeah. I don't know. I'm like, okay, cool, 38. <laughs> We're just going to run out there and tell everybody it's 50. I'm like, ah, wait a minute. Um, you know, I think working from the bottom up saying, what was your, you know, manufacturing process? What concentrate did you start with? Mm -hmm. How much do you think you put in per unit? Can I test a broad number of units to see if I'm getting the same number from each of those to, to know if you're, you know, homogeneously mixing them or not? And then I can say, you know what, I got 10 brownies and all 10 of them showed me that you had 47.6 milligrams on average, you know, within yeah. reasonable variability in here. Were you aiming for 50? I was. All right, fantastic. You're finally getting there. Rather than, I don't know, I got this 45 out of the one. Was that what you shot for? I think working closely with the lab, you know, helps make sure that you're going to get that label accurate in the end. And yeah. regulations have helped make sure that you have to do that. But every edible is its own problem, right? So I can have different types of chocolate with different fats causing yep. different problems, different brownie mm -hmm. matrices. Some have, you know, walnuts or stuff in there that make it harder to check for its uniformity by weight. Um, and gummies are another great example because gummies can be made in a lot of different ways, but they really like to hold on to those cannabinoids. So if you don't have a good methodology for testing that, you very well may be missing a, a good significant part of what's actually in there. So every type of edible kind of needs its own validated yeah. method, if you will. Um, I think we're lucky enough to have been around for so long that we've had a lot of time to work on each of these. And even in the early days, like I, I was like any type of food product you can imagine, someone's tried to throw cannabis in it. So we probably got experience with it one way, shape, form or another from the disgusting looking tiramisu all the way to the brownies and cookies. You're like, dear God, that shouldn't be here. Um, but it helped us kind of understand which methodologies of sample prep and then further analysis would actually be the best ones to go after. But if you're a brand new lab and you just found some scientist and they might not even be the right one, you know, to go run your lab and your, you know, business professional and said, I, I think the lab game is going to be a good one because it's required by rules that everybody has to work with them. You know, you might make bad choices in which equipment you might not know your scientist, you know, isn't the best person running the, the game and they have to develop all their own methods because no one said, here's exactly the roadmap today. So there's, there's an immense amount of challenges, let alone product complexities that go with that. Absolutely. And this this really neatly segues into the other sort of the, the other grand discussion I wanted to get into you get into with you, which is um, uh, process validation and product standardization. Um, and I was interested to know whether your decision to start to really focus on product standardization and those issues, did that stem from the inconsistencies you were seeing when you were doing cannabis testing? Um, and that sort of thing, or did it just kind of come about simultaneously? You know, were you always sort of thinking about that? No, there's a little of both. I mean, I yeah. you see wild, you know, inconsistencies and you know it's a problem, but you're also saying if I want to provide um, medical products and things that mm -hmm. I can understand yeah. are driving these physiological, you know, effects, I have to know that it's the same thing every single time. So I want to standardize products so I can assess that this is delivering those predominant physiological utilities. I also want to see this standardized because I see right now it's a complete mess and people aren't really doing that very well. 
Um, unfortunately, today we still don't have a lot of great standardization. You know, there's not yeah. standardization in cultivar names, and anybody can call it whatever they want. There's no yeah. formalized assessment of you know what is actually Blue Dream or not. There's also um, you know the unfortunate pieces that different extraction methods cause different chemical changes and transformations. Mm -hmm. So now I've got someone calling Blue Dream flower and Blue Dream you know fill in the blank type of concentrate, whether it be rosin sauce, live resin, you know, butter, batter, right. you name it, um, or even water hash. And then I have, you know, Blue Dream vape carts, and they're mm -hmm. all derivatized in different ways. So now I've called everything Blue Dream, but none of the chemicals match up to say these compositions are looking like one another or even the same. So I can produce any one of those in any fashion I want, as long as I'm doing the exact same thing and analyzing the product at the end to say, I am creating a consistent profile, right? When I look at these, right. you know, tens of molecules, I can tell you that they are within these, you know, reasonable variabilities of lab accuracies, if you will, and a reasonable plus minus for agricultural variability, perhaps, to say I've got a fairly consistent product and one that should deliver a consistent physiological impact, which is important for a brand in adult use is as important as it is for medical utility. Um, I don't think we see a lot of that yet today. So yeah. you need good labs that can demonstrate all these, you know, component pieces very accurately and reproducibly. And then you need good production that says, I am doing the same things every single time. And then we'll have some standardized products that we can start to say, okay, maybe we're seeing these groups of people consuming in this fashion, getting those effects. And we can all start to kind of further our body of knowledge uh, with what cannabis could do for us in that fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And something that seems to be, um, building in the producer world as people are starting to wrap their minds around uh, good manufacturing processes um, and not necessarily just as a buzzword, but actually going to the, you know, the federal, the CFRs and, and looking at what's actually required for GMP compliance. And that starts to lead down a road towards, um, particularly if you're trying to operate your product manufacturing company um, in a way where you're concerned about medical kind of quality and you're kind of aiming for something between dietary supplement and pharmaceutical kind of uh, quality standards, then that starts to lead into this world of, okay, we have to actually, like a cannabis testing lab would validate their analytical methods as producers, we have to validate our equipment, we have to validate our processes, we have to actually come up with ways to measure these things and define them um, so that we can be consistent. And so that's been encouraging, although it's a very slow um, adoption <laughs> process. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, dietary supplement world has been working on it for a long time, yeah. right? Deshea passed in the nineties. Yep. And I'd say there's still, you know, bad actors and no, you know, some aren't perfect in that world. There are oh, yeah. excellent companies though. You know, there are some that definitely hit the bar and, and have raised it on everyone else. Um, but it is a long evolving process. Um, and as states kind of take their own picture on each of those pieces, as, you know, different operators, you know, come about in different ways and different products take hold in the marketplace, there's this current time period, which, which will persist for quite some time, I believe, of, you know, figuring it out, if you will. But it will yeah. eventually become much, much better. And I think, you know, our children and our children's children are definitely going to benefit from all the struggles that we're going through now. Fortunately, but it's not, it shouldn't be understood now that we've got it all figured out <laughs> because <laughs> we still have a lot to do in many oh, ways. I, yeah. So, so many things to do. And, and like you said, I mean, 
these problems are not necessarily unique to the cannabis industry. Um, the natural products world in general is, um, you know, uh, there are all sorts of issues related to how do you uh, verify that component ingredients you're bringing in for your products are actually what someone says they are because fraud in the natural products industry yeah. is very rampant. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's an ongoing process that um, we've been trying to figure out um, across the board. And now cannabis is just getting thrown into the mix. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, on, yeah, I mean, it was this actually echinacea that you put in there, you know, right, do they actually yeah. have, you know, the good things or the wrong things out of this, you know, someone had said, well, they don't make an echinacea shatter. So I don't even know how to deal with that type of product here. <laughs> you know, cannabis has its own product forms and, mm -hmm. and uses and end products that are derived from it. So it's got its own extra layers of complexity. And I yep. think we know we're not looking at only one active ingredient. They're, the more right. we look at, the better. So that adds other multipliers of complexity. And I think the natural products world does recognize the power of plants and saying, hey, these plants, when provided in standardized extracts or as mm -hmm. you know, whole plant products, have offered these benefits because of the same type of entourage idea that we're mm -hmm. utilizing with cannabis. But it's, you know cannabis kind of takes it to that next level of complexity saying other forms and all these other molecules that we want to watch. And if it's difficult to standardize, you know, one or two components in the natural products world and be sure, you know, I got the right lavender in this product or I got my echinacea from the right source that I was getting, it's going to be that much harder uh, across the cannabis panacea, if you will. Yes. And I, I think there's power in diversity, right? We're going to find more of the answers that we want and we're going to get more people the benefits that they need if we're not all driving towards one specific cultivar. Mm -hmm. But it is, you know going to take that much longer to kind of figure out how to wrestle with all of it in a regulation and, you know, proper sense of saying this product is standardized and consistent and good for you type of consumer, um, because it will take that much longer to figure it out. It's just that much more complex, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And, and something that you touched on that I want to make sure we talk about specifically is related to um, extraction and refinement and how you can... Um, get into this messy world of um, uh, sometimes non-target compounds that arise uh, depending on the extraction method. And um, one thing that I've noticed from talking to a lot of my friends that are still um, actively doing commercial cannabis testing, um, particularly in the hemp space, is around Delta-8 THC. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, the fact that there seem to be a lot of... Um, a lot of the labs I talked to have sort of speculations on what they think these compounds are, but there are definitely side reactions and things happening in a lot of the uh, methods being used to manufacture these Delta-8 THC products that are becoming really, really popular, although that's uh, maybe changing um, now, that, <laughs> yeah. now that the DEA has finally like said, you know, hey, we're, we're looking at this and other countries are complaining about Delta-8 products leaving the U.S. and showing up in their countries. Um, is that something you have any experience with, particularly the, the Delta-8 THC yep. issue? And these... Most definitely. It's an interesting, very interesting compound and one that we've worked on for a number of years. We actually have a yeah. white paper on Delta-8 THC available via our website. So um, you can go to the resource section there and download some information. And in there, we have a comparable chromatogram, like mm -hmm. one from, you know, here was a very well done clean conversion from we took Delta-9 THC to Delta-8 THC. 
and you can see the chromatographic profile. And here's what somebody else called Delta-8 with a bunch of unknowns in the cannabinoid region. What are they? You know, are they good for you, bad for you? Are they even a cannabinoid? Um, I think there's a lack of understanding on how difficult it is to fully characterize a new mm -hmm. compound, a new unknown. It's a tremendous amount of work and it needs lots of different analytical equipment to really get it right. Um, and sometimes, you know, you could see like academic literature change, you know, 15 years mm -hmm. later, say, whoops, we had one of these chiral centers wrong. This yep. is actually the compound this way. Um, it can be immense amounts of years of work of graduate students to try and find this is this new compound. We do see a lot of, you know, unknowns or mystery peaks, right? Mystery material mm -hmm. that shows up. And while, yes, you might have some Delta-8 in here, what are the other ones? And, you know, should we be concerned about that? The FDA exists for reasons because when they make these compounds that are highly active, you get certain impurity profiles. But if it goes above certain things, we know that there are toxicity limits and your manufacturing methods went wrong. They make you identify and understand and study, are the, any of these impurities going to be potentially toxic so that we know where to set the limits on these things? None of that is happening within cannabis. So while cannabis, you know, originally presented on the flower is fine and we haven't seen, you know, any radical deaths or problems from those things, are we going to end up getting to derivative forms or other, you know, synthesized um, isomers or other products that are coming from those processes that may not even look like a big deal on the chromatogram, but end up being highly potent or highly toxic in some ways. And you could envision, you know, do I end up with a spice type compound from right. one of these where their activities are hundreds of times greater than the molecules already presented that we are comfortable with. And I didn't know it was in here. And all of a sudden this person, you know, their endocannabinoid system locked up and I've got mass depression. I've got suicidal tendencies. I could have other types of problems that come from that. Um, because it wasn't what we were, you know, originally dealing with or aiming for. It could be a big problem. I think we're really lucky the toxicity profile that you have with cannabis, like the effective range of doses to where it's actually problematic toxicity wise is tremendous. So you don't have to worry too much about that. Um, but the, you know, at, in, I'd say the accidental case of oops i made something this way because i came up with a new method that was going to be better you know when might that happen i hope it never happens but we probably should put some sort of controls and protections in place about when these things are okay to push to market um you know we may see you're going to have to do some sort of basic talk studies on new things that are not already understood or grandfathered in i don't think you know, like Delta-8, there's been a lot of understanding of that molecule before, um, and a lot of Delta-8 analogs were made in the pharmaceutical world to kind of go after looking at the endocannabinoid system in that respect. So there's a good level of comfort about some molecules, but how far do you go until you're not comfortable with that anymore? And I, you yeah. know, I just hope we don't find out the hard way, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. And and the purity issue is, is so big. It's something that... Um you know, the FDA has been so hands-off of uh, particularly the hemp industry. Um, you know, they've issued statements and things, but they really haven't done much of enforcement. And I think part of that is them trying to wrap their heads around what that's going to look like. Um, but something that's been on my mind is I really don't think a lot of people are prepared for stepping into that world of, you know, if you're 
making any product and it and it's not pure and it's not something that is recognized as safe there is a lot of work that goes into well what are those impurities and yeah are they toxic and all these studies that go into getting like um you know you can get a grass status on a particular product or a particular line of products even if the fda hasn't issued um grass status to that chemical or that product specifically but i mean you're talking sometimes usually like millions of dollars to get through <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. those studies um, a number of many number of months right like it's not yes. a rush to market type thing no and it's usually something where you want to find an independent you know scientific advisory board you know to lend some credibility to um the study designs you know all these different aspects of it um and i i just really feel like there's you know sort of a a reckoning coming um, even if things play out smoothly with the hemp industry and, you know, maybe Congress adjusts some of the language of the farm bill and, uh, CBD and all of these other compounds in hemp are, are treated, you know, like dietary supplements or things, but even if they're treated like dietary supplements, that doesn't mean you can just go and, I mean, people do this, um, but they usually don't last long as companies, but you can't just rush to market, um, with your new cannabinoid formulation um, and just ex expect it to be accepted and uh, tolerated by regulatory officials um, without demonstrating some of those things. Now, things like hemp tinctures and basic um, extracts that haven't been heavily refined or fortified and that sort of thing that, you know, may fall into a different category. Um, but talking about things like Delta-8 production or even... Um, you know, cannabinoid isolates in general, um, because it's just with chemical synthesis, as I'm sure, you know, like <laughs> impurities are so easy to make. Um, yeah, yeah, yes, they are. <laughs> and I mean, in highly purified compounds are usually more expensive to go after, right? The purification yeah. efforts, loss of material, and just those, those methods require time and effort too. So yeah. if I can get away with something that's 80% pure, instead of making it 95 plus, well, I would economically be driven to do so. So, okay, well, I'll go ahead and do that until someone tells me I can't, um, which <laughs> yeah. is unfortunately some of what we're seeing today. Yeah, absolutely. And um, getting a little uh, beyond some of the stuff we've talked about so far with testing and, and product standardiz standardization and everything, um, going a sort of a much higher level, what are some things currently that are really um, piquing your interest research-wise um, as far as uh, cannabis and cannabinoid science goes? Um, I, I think there's continuing innovation in scaling the process methodologies. So which ways are going to work, you know, most efficiently, especially as you see all the hemp farming come on board, yeah. um, you know, are we going to make high purity compounds and new molecules that would lend towards better standardized formulations um, and really getting each of those specific molecules in hand so that we can make more advanced formulations. So it's encouraging to see, you know, not everybody's going to plant more CBD again, <laughs> right? They're going to start <laughs> to breed for different plant components. Um, I think the biotechnology approach of enzymatically producing some things via fermentation um, is pretty interesting. Um, it's legally very interesting too, whether that's, you know, actually allowed or not. Um, but I think it does enable you to say, hey, these are high purity compounds and they're made in, in relatively efficient fashion as well. So again, I can make much more sophisticated and standardized formulations. I think getting to that 
broad-based, really sophisticated, standardized formula is still a lot of our focus and a lot of energy is going into there because it requires both analytical and manufacturing perspectives to actually get there. And yeah. there's still a bunch of work to be had in that regard. Now, I don't know, you know, if the next new rare cannabinoid, I mean, certainly of interest to see what it's doing, you know, in the Petri dish and in the mice or whatever, but how fast can we translate that into the field and into getting into the hands of everybody? Was it some minor rare artifact that was actually produced and really the plant doesn't even make it? It just happened that, you know, it came together on this one rare cultivar that no one has anymore. Um, you know, which ways might we utilize the plant to make these ingredients? And the second piece is what else are we going to do with the plant in terms of fuels, textiles, feed, mm -hmm. you know, food and, and other pieces, you know, everyone rushed to do CBD, but there's a whole lot more to be had with hemp. And I think, you know, the farmers are wise enough to start saying, well, I'm going to start to look towards making textiles with that. And I think, you know, watching that evolve over the next few years is going to be a lot of fun and, and quite fascinating too. Yeah, I agree. I'm very excited to see the hemp industry evolve be well beyond CBD. And I know there's like market forces at play because it's sometimes, well, some of it is just straight up lies by investors and things being told. But, you know, a lot of farmers, you know, are told by some consultant that comes in that, hey, your five acre field is going to be worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars because of the CBD we're going to pull out of there or whatever. And then that never happens. The market um, commoditizes and slides <laughs> in the three months after you planted before you harvested. And you're like, well, I'm getting a tenth of what this guy told me now. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 But, but hopefully as the market matures, um, it will be more, uh, it'll make more sense for farmers to think uh, more creatively. Um, I had an opportunity to interview Morris Beagle from uh, We're for Better Alternatives um, about this because that's one of his sort of main, uh, you know, his main focus is trying to figure out like what are these other things we can do with the plant, um, and certainly the medical applications are fascinating and immense, but there's this whole other side that is still very underappreciated, um, and the government has opened the door to it. And so at least we got the door open, right? <laughs> and now exactly. Finally, open, let's run through it and go ahead <laughs> and explore all that we can and hold the door open. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Put a wedge in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Wedge would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure coming soon. Um, well, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're getting uh, close on an hour here, um, but I really appreciate you being willing to take the time and, and chat about all of these things that, I definitely think a lot about, and it's always great to connect with fellow scientists that have been doing testing and uh, quality management work and all of that. Um, you know, we're sort of a, a small little uh, culture of people um, in the industry, so it's it's great to to connect on that end. And as we wrap up, I kind of want to just hand the platform over to you for a few minutes, and if you want to let people know. Um, anything that the workshop has going on, or at least let people know about uh, your website and how to learn more about the work you're doing and, and really anything that you want to share in the last few minutes we have here, uh, the platform sure. is yours. 
Oh, thank you. And, and thank you for the opportunity. It is always fun talking with other fellow scientists in the field. Um, I think we've got a uniquely informed perspective from a molecular standpoint, and mm -hmm. to kind of compare notes and share experiences is always fun. So yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. And for those that would like to learn more about us, they can find us on our website, theworkshop.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, other social media pieces. We're aiming to have a little bit of some giveaways on our social media platforms via Instagram later throughout the end of the year. Um, I won't tell you exactly what they are, but um, there's some, some new things that we've done and you can find on our website. We just released uh, one of them, a biosynthetic pathway poster where we oh, kind cool. of analyze, you know, here's how the plant starts from carbon dioxide and makes some of these really interesting and fun molecules. Um, it's a neat picture uh, for sure to kind of say what's the plant's machinery kind of look like and how's it function. Um, and I think for us, we're just going to keep continuing to drive uh, all sorts of product standardization efforts, helping out a number of brands across the country from the East Coast to the West Coast, um, and really trying to drive those most sophisticated formulations that give you that desired physiological experience time and time again. Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify, if anyone's listening and not familiar, the workshop is WERC workshop, um, just in case someone <laughs> yeah. listening. Yep. That's trouble hunting that down. Um, yep. T-H-E-W-E-R-C-S-H-O-P.com. Yep. Thanks for that. Yeah, no, totally. Um, well, yeah, that's really exciting. I look forward to seeing the work that you guys uh, continue to do. Certainly what you're focusing on now is, I mean, as we've said, is is so needed. So it's it's really uh, comforting to know that folks like you are, are out there, um, you know, really trying to educate and really level up um, um, the industry in general, and to ultimately um, help consumers get consistent products and know what they're getting and that sort of thing, but also the producers and really helping everybody, um, everybody's perspective on all of this kind of um, mature a little bit. So thanks so much for that work and everyone that's tuned in. Thanks so much for uh, listening to us chat today. And if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can go to cacpodcast.com. Um, and we're also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, mostly on Instagram. That's where most of the cannabis industry is on social media these days. Um, but thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. 